Amen. I'll invite you to turn with me to he, uh, First Timothy, sorry, First Timothy, chapter five, verses seventeen through twenty-five. First Timothy, chapter five, verses seventeen through twenty-five. I also invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Skepticism is nothing new, but in recent years it seems to be on the rise. As a country, our general outlook on our nation's prospects and the ability of our political leaders to affect change is certainly declining. At the beginning of last year, a Gallup poll showed that Americans were largely pessimistic about everything, you know, whether it was the economy or domestic political affairs or international affairs, most Americans had negative outlooks. The more recent Gallup poll from the beginning of this month showed that none of our top government officials, from the president to the vice president to Supreme Court justices, leaders of Congress and beyond, none of those top government officials had a majority job approval rating. Trust and optimism are increasingly rare today. And as we anticipate the fall presidential elections, voters from both major parties seem resigned to have to choose between two candidates who do not inspire much confidence in the majority of Americans. This growing distrust and ebbing confidence in the political sphere have inevitably seeped into our collective attitude about all those in authority. With the news media constantly producing negative stories from polarized perspectives about those in leadership, we have naturally grown skeptical about authority. Traditional leaders no longer seem to be able to generate much hope. Instead, our society searches for slivers of optimism and feel-good stories on shows like America's Got Talent or through 
the benevolent deeds of YouTubers like Mr. Beast. We are people who lack hope. Because the reality is that we don't have much hope in the leaders of society. But as Christians, we should not fall prey to the cultural winds of skepticism. Because we have a sure and steady hope. We have a hope that far transcends a 10-minute TV segment or a 15-minute YouTube video. We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we trust in a story of unparalleled redemption that liberates us from the, the bondage, uh, bondage to the pessimism of society. We are people who should live in the reality of a hope-filled future. We believe that Jesus saves. We believe that sin has been defeated. We believe that Jesus will ultimately rescue us from the disappointments and disasters of this current world. And we believe in the church because Jesus has promised to build it. First Timothy tells us that the church is the household of God. It is meant to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is to be a united family in a world of disunity and chaos. It's a place where truth is upheld in a world where words have become increasingly difficult to trust and believe. It is a place where real hope chases skepticism and pessimism away. And 1 Timothy is a letter written to help the church know how it should behave so that it functions as that household, so that it functions as that pillar and buttress in order that it might effectively display the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And today we have come to the place in this letter that calls upon the church to renew its trust in its leaders. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, we have a passage in which Paul calls the church to honor its leaders. Despite the skepticism toward leaders that pervades modern society, as a church, our orientation should be one of honor and respect and care for the leaders that God has provided for us. The message here is that a healthy church which commends the gospel will care for its elders. Faithful Christians won't allow themselves to adopt the distrust that is now so endemic to our relationships with people in positions of authority in this world. Instead, true believers will honor those whom God has placed over them in the church. And they will do this because the leaders of God's people need their support. In order for the church to be healthy, it needs healthy leaders who are supported by their people. And when churches have these kinds of faithful leaders who are loved and cared for, they can function the way that they were meant to function. They can protect and proclaim the gospel message of Jesus, which provides the hope this world still urgently needs. So today we're going to spend time looking at the second part of Paul's instruction concerning elders to Timothy and the Ephesian church. Uh, Part one was back in chapter three, and there Paul dealt with the qualifications for elders. Uh, Who should be an elder of the church? Well, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 tells us. Here in chapter five, we get part two of Paul's instruction. And this part focuses 
on the relationship a church should have with its elders. It deals with how we should treat and relate to elders in the church as believers. In these verses, Paul outlines four different commitments that a church should have as it considers its relationship with its elders. These are four duties that a church should embrace in order to properly care for its elders. First, we see that the the church is to honor elders generously. Honor elders generously. In uh, verse 17, Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. When Paul uses the word elders, he's clearly talking about church leaders. The Bible also uses the terms overseers and pastors to describe these leaders. Elders, overseers, pastors, they all refer to the same group of men who are called and set apart to lead and shepherd God's church. And we see here in verse 17 that they are entrusted with ruling in the church. That means that they are to direct the affairs of the church. They are to lead out. And the same Greek word is used in chapter 3, verses 4 and 12, when referring to the need for elders and deacons to manage their families well. Elders are to rule by managing God's house. But as you know, you can have good managers and and bad ones. And so Paul emphasizes in verse 17 that he's referring to elders who rule well. Not all men who hold the title of elder necessarily rule well. But those who do, those who lead and direct and manage and shepherd and care for God's people faithfully, they are worthy of the church's honor. And notice that Paul writes, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I'll make sure you follow what Paul is saying here. He's saying, let all elders who rule faithfully, who, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor. But, but there's a subset of those men, who, those who labor in preaching and teaching, who are especially worthy of the church's consideration. Now, all elders should be able to teach God's word. And that's a qualification mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. But that doesn't mean that all elders have to be particularly gifted as preachers and teachers. Well, they all should demonstrate an ability to teach the Bible and defend the gospel. There are other responsibilities in the church that certain elders can focus more of their attention on for the the benefit of the church. Some elders may focus more on administration or counseling or shepherding or missions. That's just one of the benefits of the way that God has designed of the leadership of his church. Elders were always meant to serve in a plurality so that their different gifts and talents can be collectively used for the building up of God's people. But the primary ministry of elders is still the ministry of the word. So a church should ensure to the greatest extent possible that it provides the ability for at least one of its elders to devote himself primarily to that work. That's why Paul writes that those elders who labor, meaning those who regularly put in the time and the work, who who toil in preaching and teaching, should be especially considered worthy of double honor. Paul isn't talking about honoring the lazy pastors here. The church should not honor sloth. Elders are called to hard work in the church. They they shouldn't think that they just have to fulfill a 40-hour work week. 
If they are working a secular job and also serving in the church, it's inevitable that they're going to work more than 40 hours a week if they are being faithful to their calling. And if they are paid as staff members to serve in the church, they should be putting in a similar amount of effort as they labor for the kingdom. And so to be clear, it is the hard-working, well-ruling elder that God calls the church to consider worthy of double honor. Now, what is double honor? What's double honor? Well, it's honoring elders in two ways. First, it's honoring them by respecting them. Okay, turn with me back two books in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want you to look with me at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians in verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Do you notice that Paul was calling the Thessalonian church to do essentially the same thing he was calling the Ephesian church to do in 1 Timothy? He was calling them to respect and highly esteem those whom God had placed over them in the church as those men labored and they worked for the Lord among them. And so... One component of double honor is respecting elders who rule well. And this means having an orientation toward listening to your elders and obeying them. It means being careful in how you speak about them and how you speak to them. It means praying for them. It could mean encouraging them through gifts and kindness. It's not putting them on a, a pedestal where they can't be knocked off. But it is realizing that the office God has given them in the church is to be respected and their work is to be esteemed and appreciated. That's the first way the church is to honor its elders, through respect. But there's another way that the church should honor its elders. And that's through financially supporting them. A church shouldn't just respect its elders, it should also provide proper remuneration. And that's the double honor that Paul writes about. This second way of showing honor was already highlighted previously in 1 Timothy. If you go back to that book and you look at verse 3 of chapter 5, you'll notice that Paul called upon the church to honor widows. And the, the, the context of that discussion shows us that he was calling them to financially support widows who were in real need. Honor equals financial support. Now, look with me at verse 18 of chapter 5 in our passage this morning, verse 18. Here we see Paul making this point about honoring your elders through paying them even clearer. He wrote, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And that is taken from Deuteronomy 25.4. In those Old Testament days, oxen were used to help thresh grain, and this would usually occur on a circular piece of ground where sheaves of grain would be spread out and then an ox would be asked to walk repeatedly over those sheaves to separate the grain from the stalk and the chaff. And as they walked and worked, these oxen would be allowed to eat some of the grain. So to put a muzzle over their mouths and restrict them from eating would have been unloving. It would have been unkind. Okay, the, the idea was, let the ox that works eat. And if that concept was still too vague, Paul referenced something Jesus said and 
Luke recorded in Luke 10.7. The laborer deserves his wages. Those who work should be adequately compensated for their work. And, and this wasn't just Paul's opinion. He emphasizes that this is Scripture speaking. This is God's word. The Scripture says this. So double honor means not only showing respect, but also paying remuneration. It means not just honor, but also providing an honorarium. It's a hard attitude that esteems and appreciates the work an elder does. And it's the tangible action of supporting an elder financially for that work. Any elder, whether vocational or volunteer, who rules well should be considered worthy of double honor. Not all elders must be paid, but they should be considered worthy of pay if they are being faithful and especially giving time to preach and teach. Now, some of you who know your Bible and who know the Apostle Paul might wonder, what about Paul? Wasn't he a tent maker who didn't get paid for his ministry as an apostle? True, but Paul did, in certain instances, refuse to be paid for his work. Uh, He supported himself through other work so that the ministry of the gospel wouldn't be hindered. And he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9. But in that passage, 1 Corinthians 9, he, he states that even though he refused to be paid, he still had the right to receive material support from the Corinthians. And in a different context, with a different church, he actually did receive financial support. And you can read about that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. So, so Paul was very much for churches providing financial support to church leaders, but he also modeled a willingness to refuse that support for the sake of gospel ministry. Okay, you might say, I, I understand that Paul was for paying church leaders, But might it still be better for church leaders to be more bivocational like him? Wouldn't that be less of a burden on churches to allow funds to be spent on other kingdom priorities? Wouldn't that allow for more churches to be planted, especially in areas where the cost of living is high? Well, certainly Paul was not against all bivocational ministry, but It seemed like he did it out of necessity for the cause of the gospel in those early days of the church so that his motives might not be questioned rather than as a model of ideal pastoral ministry. Here in 1 Timothy, we see that in an established church like the one in Ephesus, Paul exhorted the church to pay its elders, especially those who devoted themselves to preaching and teaching. And the reality is that you tend to get what you pay for. We haven't really found another Apostle Paul who is able to both work and elder and pastor like him. If a church can't afford to pay a pastor enough to keep him from taking on another job, then it can only expect him to do so much work in the church. It can only expect him to devote so much time to the ministry of God's word. Now, in some situations, this is unavoidable. In small churches and some church plants, it may be necessary for an elder to be bivocational, at least for a time. But as the church has ability, it should strive to support its main preaching and teaching elders financially so that they can be free to devote more time and attention to ministry. And as churches grow, it's usually appropriate to have both paid and unpaid elders. At our church, we call them staff elders and lay elders. 
the distinction between them is not necessarily ability or gifting, but more so the time and attention each can devote to the work of leading the church. Both staff and lay elders are responsible for teaching and ruling. Both are worthy of honor. But those who are able to devote time to laboring over preaching and teaching should be especially considered worthy of double honor and receive pay. David Mathis has written, It is an amazing gift to a church when a man is willing and eager to give his life's work, his career, to full-time Christian ministry. And it's also an amazing gift that a man in another line of work would give himself to sufficient training and equipping and then give many of his evenings and weekends and often important moments during the work week to unpaid Christian ministry. Both kinds of pastors are gifts from Jesus to build and keep his church. And I would add that both are worthy of double honor. So bivocational pastors are sometimes needed in smaller churches. But as churches grow, they benefit from having both paid full-time pastors along with pastors and elders who are unpaid. Okay, that makes sense, you might say. But I have one more question. How do we know how much elders should be paid? Now, there are different ways to approach that question. But I'll just say that I believe that as churches are able, they should generally pay their pastoral staff something in the range of what an average church member makes when you account for their age, education, and experience. And I think a church should try to pay a wage that provides enough for their families to not just survive, but really thrive in their community. A double honor doesn't mean double pay, as some have occasionally suggested. We're not trying to make elders rich. Pastors should have a heart that is ready to sacrifice to serve the Lord. But their people should also have a heart that is ready to sacrifice for them so that they might serve the Lord well. And double honor means appropriate pay that allows an elder to devote his valuable time to the work of the ministry for the building up of the saints. Now, on behalf of the pastors and elders at our church, I'm pretty sure I speak for them all when I say that we are very grateful for the ways in which you show us honor. Uh, we have a, amen. <laughs> we have a finance committee that consistently thinks about our needs and adjusts our salaries and our benefits uh, to help free us from ministry. We experience so much generosity from you all in, in just a myriad of ways, whether it is food or babysitting or thoughtful gifts. So we, we truly feel your support. We are constantly encouraged by your prayers for us. So please know that I'm not asking from more of you as a church. I'm just asking that you continue to do the good work as a church that you have been doing and showing honor to your leaders. Uh, Kelly was asking me last night, is it going to be awkward for you to preach this passage? <laughs> and I said, no, I think because the church is already doing this work so well. You know, if the church wasn't, then it might be a sensitive topic in the church. But you guys are excelling in this, and so it frees me even to be able to preach this just freely, uh, as God has outlined for us to, to hear in his word. And so the first duty a, a church has towards elders is to honor them generously. The second, a church is to protect them jealously. Honor elders generously and protect elders jealously. Now look with me at verse 19. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
The idea here is for the church to protect the reputation of its leaders. And the specific instruction is not to admit or accept a charge against an elder unless there are multiple witnesses who can provide evidence. And this standard of having at least two to three witnesses was a widely understood practice in Jewish culture at that time. It was based on Deuteronomy 19.15. On one hand, Paul is just restating an accepted practice. Accusations and allegations should not be entertained unless there are multiple witnesses so that a false witness with an axe to grind can't just conjure up charges from thin air and expect to be heard. On the other hand, Paul is bringing special attention to this practice because of the nature of the office of elder. Whenever there is a position of leadership, there's a natural tendency for those under that leadership to scrutinize and criticize and complain. And this can occur for a number of reasons. Perhaps there is some personal resentment. Maybe there's some jealousy. Maybe there are disagreements over certain teachings or or preferences or vision or even ways of doing ministry. All kinds of things can cause people to talk about their leaders in an unflattering way and sometimes even cause them to bring up unfair and untrue accusations. And this can come out in informal conversations. It can come out on group chats. It can pop up in Google or Yelp reviews of a church or on a social media post. Today, the forums for criticism are abundant. And what Paul is reminding us of here is that we should not be in the habit, as God's people, of receiving or believing those kinds of charges. Instead, our natural tendency should be to defend the reputation of our pastors and elders and overseers. Our love for them as brothers and our respect for them as leaders in the church should have us believing the best about them. And when we hear negative rumbles from an individual like, pastor doesn't care about them, or that elder is just playing favorites, or he's too authoritative, or he's too soft, or he's too worldly, or he's too holy, when, when we hear those kinds of comments, our initial reaction should be to disregard them and stand up for the leaders that God has placed in our lives. That's what it means to jealously protect your elders. But this shouldn't be an undiscerning allegiance to them. Because we understand that even though elders should be exemplary models of Christian faithfulness, they are still men and they still sin. And so we see Paul balancing this out in verses 20 and 21. Not only should we be committed to jealously protecting our elders from unsubstantiated criticisms and attacks, but we should also have the courage to discipline them when they sin. And so the third duty of the church in caring for its elders is to discipline them courageously. Discipline elders courageously. In verse 20, Paul writes, says, For those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And notice that Paul refers to sin that is persistent. He's not saying that elders need to be rebuked any time they commit any sin, uh, we, we wouldn't have reg- time for regular church if we had to do that. You know, we are all constantly battling different sins in our lives as believers. What Paul is referring here to here, though, is the elder who is living in sin. This would include those elders who have committed serious public sins for which they are unrepentant. And if an elder is sinning in this way, and the church has confronted him about 
that sin in accordance with how Jesus says this should be done in Matthew 18, and, and that elder refuses to repent, then he should be publicly rebuked. Uh, there may also be cases, depending on the situation, where an elder does express repentance. But the sin that he has committed is serious enough and public enough that it may also require public rebuke. Uh, This takes discernment, but almost certainly, if an elder has committed a sin that disqualifies himself from serving as an elder, a public rebuke seems necessary. And this rebuke is to occur in the presence of all. That means that it should happen in the congregation. In the context of this passage, we see that Paul has already brought the the whole church into this discussion. He's saying, if there is a scenario in which two or three or more church members bring evidence of serious public sin and elders committing, and he persists in that sin, then it is appropriate to tell it to the whole congregation. Jesus says it very plainly in Matthew 18, 17. Or, yeah, Matthew 18, 17. He says, Tell it to the church. Why? So that the rest, the other elders and the rest of the church, may stand in fear so that they might not fall into sin themselves. And Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 21 and he writes, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Paul brings Timothy into the divine council room, if you will, in verse 21. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, meaning those angels who did not fall into sin, in the presence of this heavenly council, he charges Timothy to make sure that he keeps these rules that he has set out. Which rules? Well, maybe everything that he has said back, going back to verse 17. But certainly I think he's referring to these rules about protecting and disciplining elders in verses 19 and 20. And what Paul conveys in the strongest of language here is that the church should deal with its elders who are in persistent sin with utmost fairness and care. They should not prejudge these situations. That means they shouldn't bring preconceived judgments about innocence or or guilt into their decision making. They also shouldn't do anything from partiality. That means they shouldn't play favorites with anyone. Having been through a situation like this in the past, I will say that these are the most difficult situations any church leadership team in any church will have to go through. There is a subtle and sometimes even strong temptation to try to protect certain friendships or family members or to try to protect the reputation of the church or to keep people from getting upset or leaving the church in, which, uh, in those situations in which church leaders have seriously sinned. There is a temptation to just sweep things under the rug. There is a temptation to use vague language and downplay sin. There's a temptation to try to preserve the institution or one's name. But Paul is saying here, be courageous. Don't shield your leaders if they persist in sin. Rebuke them publicly when necessary because God and the angels are watching. The church has suffered enough from the cover-ups of leadership failures over the years that we cannot afford to not hear Paul's words of wisdom here. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, knowing that the challenges that the church will face and will continue to face, Paul called upon the church to keep its leaders accountable. If you truly care for your elders, 
and you care about the health of your church, you will have the courage to demand that elders in persistent sin be disciplined. How does the church care for its elders? Well, it cares for them by honoring them generously, protecting them jealously, and disciplining them courageously. Fourth and finally, a church must be committed to selecting their elders carefully. A church must select elders carefully. In verse 22, we find Paul mentioning the laying on of hands. And this is a reference to ordination. We find this laying on of hands practiced in Acts 6 when seven men were commissioned as proto-deacons to serve the church in Jerusalem. When Timothy was commissioned for ministry, uh, other elders also laid their hands on him in 1 Timothy 4.14 and 2 Timothy 1.6. Here Paul is referring to the ordination of elders, and he says, Do not be hasty in ordaining others, elders. In other words, select elders carefully. You need time to observe their character and the, the nature of their service in the church before they are ready to be ordained. And then Paul warns Timothy in verse 22 not to take part in the sins of others. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying that if you are hasty in ordaining elders, you run the risk of putting unqualified men into office. And the sins that they commit as elders become sins that you bear some responsibility for. Their service or sinfulness as elders reflects upon your own ministry. And so he's saying, Timothy, be careful about this and keep yourself pure. Now, in verse 23, we find a a brief comment that's meant specifically for Timothy. And as Paul wrote about the need for Timothy to remain pure in the ordination process of other men, it seems like he was reminded of Timothy's own convictions about purity. And it seems that Timothy himself may have been very concerned about staying pure in all aspects of his life, uh, so much so that he tended toward asceticism. And this showed up in his drinking habits. He was so concerned about purity that he only drank water. He would have been the pastor with a Stanley mug, you know, not, the, not the coffee cup, not the beer cozy, not the wine glass. Timothy didn't want anyone to think that he was abusing alcohol or becoming drunk, so he abstained from it completely. But, called, but Paul called him back from his extreme convictions in verse 23. He wrote, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. In those days, wine was thought to have some medicinal benefits. Even today, there are studies that show that wine can be beneficial for one's health. And so Paul encouraged Timothy to drink some. He qualified it, though. He said, a little wine for the sake of his stomach and ailments. Knowing Timothy's physical weaknesses, Paul didn't want him to jeopardize his health for the sake of appearances. And while Paul wasn't commenting on social drinking, he does indicate that a moderate amount of wine for certain purposes is fine for the believer. Now, after that short word, he moves back to the topic of selecting elders in verses 24 and 25. And he writes, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Some people have very obvious sins. And they go, they go before those people to judgment. You know, the image is that these sins are kind of like hype men. 
that go before a man into the ring of judgment. And they are proclaiming that he is a sinner. And in this case, those sins would disqualify that man from even entering into the ring or becoming an elder. However, there are other men whose sins are not so obvious. And their sins tend to be hidden initially, but over time they too will get exposed. So the lesson here is don't be hasty about laying hands on these men. On the flip side, you have some men whose good works are conspicuous, verse 25 says. They are obvious, and they should be considered as elders. But you also have faithful men who serve behind the scenes, or in quieter ways, whom you might not initially notice as being church leader material. Yet over time, their deeds will be exposed. Their good works will not remain hidden. And they might be the men who really should be serving in the church as elders. The key message here is that the church should not be in a rush to ordain leaders. The downsides of hasty selection are just too great. Now, for younger churches, that timeline might get condensed a bit in order to make sure the church has enough qualified leaders. But as churches mature, they can and should afford themselves the luxury of taking plenty of time when ordaining men to the office of elder. Now, we are very thankful that we currently have two new elder candidates in Albert Liu from Redeemer and Ying Mao from our Chinese congregation. Both of these men have been at our church for, for several years, and they have actively served in their previous churches. They are both very involved in ministry here at our church. Albert leads our music team and teaches and is involved in small group. Ying is one of the key leaders of our Chinese congregation's senior fellowship. He also teaches Sunday school and has preached for our Chinese congregation. And over time, their hearts for shepherding others and their love for Christ and the church has become evident. And after meeting with them and even their wives uh, over the course of many months, we have no concerns about their character or about their qualifications. And so we are currently putting them before you all to ensure that what we have observed in these men is also what you have observed. So if that's not the case, we ask that you please let one of us pastors or elders know. We want to be careful. We don't want to be hasty in this process. And if you just want to get to know these men better, uh, please note that we'll have a time next Sunday evening uh, to hear their testimonies. And so come uh, if you can. You know, we anticipate that Elder our Albert and, and Ying are going to be great additions to our elder board. And, and as they have opportunity to serve faithfully in our church, in the days to come, we hope that you'll consider them worthy of your honor as, as elders. Well, First Timothy, Paul makes it clear that it is critical for a church not only to have qualified elders, but also to care for them well. If we don't, we jeopardize the health of our church. If we don't pay our staff elders well, we tempt them to be distracted by the world We tempt them to be anxious over basic needs. If we don't defend our elders, we run the risk of seeing their ministry be dismissed and disparaged. If we don't discipline our elders, we fail to love them as we should, and ultimately, we harm the reputation of our church. And if we don't carefully choose them, we put the church in potentially dangerous hands. If if we don't do elder care properly, it's hard for a church to stay healthy. Ultimately, as believers, we are led by our Lord and Savior. 
He is the one who leads us and feeds us and keeps us through this life. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. But in his church, he has established the office of elder. And he calls certain men to rule and to preach and to teach and pastor his people. When a church has faithful elders and the people of the church love and honor them as they should, that is a recipe for a healthy church household. Continue to pray for us as pastors and elders to rule well and care for us as the Bible calls you to so that we together as the church of the living God can be a pillar and buttress of the truth and a beacon of the hope of the gospel in an increasingly cynical society. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you have designed your church. We thank you that you have given us a perfect shepherd in the Lord Jesus Christ whom we can follow. He is our north star. But you have also provided under shepherds, pastors, elders, overseers who, who are tangible expressions of your loving care for your people. We pray that you would help the elders of this church to rule well. And we pray that you would help us as a church to honor those whom you have placed in authority over us. Uh, We thank you so much that you don't just kind of set out, uh, you don't just institute this structure in your church, but you also give us very practical instructions on on how we can relate to one another as both pastors, elders, and people. And so we pray that you would increasingly grow our, our church in this relationship, make it sweet so that we can indeed be uh, the household of God, your household, and a great testimony to the world for the gospel of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.